Thank you for that. It's always nice to hear uh, Lucy Namath play the violin. I remember she grew up in the church. I remember her when she was about that big. So now she's certainly tall and talented. So thank you, everybody, for that. Let's turn now to uh, the Old Testament lesson today, which comes to us from the prophet Jeremiah. I'm going to speak a little more uh, about the context for this passage. But just so you know from the top, you'll notice I'm going to be reading from Jeremiah chapter 31. That basically means that there's been about 30 chapters in Jeremiah where he's been blasting the people of Israel, telling them how bad they are, how evil they are, and how God has been punishing them, and now they're in exile in Babylon. And so this is what he tells them that is actually kind of hopeful, and it's hopeful for us too. So let's listen now for God's word to us today from the prophet Jeremiah. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of humans and the seed of animals. And just as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring evil, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But all shall die, or all shall be responsible for their own sins. The teeth of everyone who eats sour grapes shall be set on edge, their own teeth. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray that you will grant us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the hearts and minds to understand your word and your world as best we can this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week I was standing out in the courtyard between services and somebody came up to me and said, Don, why do we still pay attention to the Old Testament? And I said, that's a good question. Why do we still pay attention to the Old Testament? Because if you've ever spent any time with the Old Testament, reading it or studying it, um, you will start to realize really soon that there are quite a few really disturbing and strange sayings and stories in what we call the Hebrew Bible, like in the book of Numbers, where after the Israelites defeat their enemies in battle, God commands them to kill every male among the little ones, the kids, and kill every woman who has known man intimately. But 
all the girls who have not known man intimately, spare for yourselves. Yikes. Then in Psalm 137, it gets worse. God tells the Israelites to bash the heads of their enemies' babies against the rocks. Not so good. You might want to avoid that passage when you're teaching Sunday school. And then there's the prophet Nahum, who kind of puts it all together nicely. The Lord is a jealous God who takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. Why on earth would you want to pay attention to stuff like that? So why do we still pay attention to the Old Testament? Well, there are three basic reasons. First of all, it's because if we don't pay attention to the Old Testament, the New Testament doesn't make any sense at all. Because the whole story of how God saves the world through Jesus Christ is rooted in what we find in the Old Testament. The prophets, the stories, everything we read about only makes sense in light of the Hebrew Bible. Second, as you know, I hope, Jesus was a Jew. And so for him, what we call the Old Testament, what he would have called the scriptures or the Torah and the rest of the writings, for him, it was a sacred text. So if we want to be like Jesus, somebody who studied the scriptures studiously and religiously, then we want to study and revere those sacred texts too. Finally, we pay attention to the Old Testament because even if it does contain, contain some weird and problematic stuff, there is also plenty of power, plenty of truth, and plenty of wisdom in those ancient words. Like the passage I just read. I first remember it, really, when I was uh, in seminary and I was studying Old Testament and Greek or Hebrew, and then I came across this text in English that I'd never paid attention to before. The parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. What in the world does that mean? Well, in English, what does sour grapes mean? Well, we use that phrase, we, we mean by sour grapes, somebody is sort of pretending that something that they want but they can't have really isn't all that important to them. Right? It comes from, actually, one of Aesop's fables called The Fox and the Grapes. So a fox is trying to grab some delicious grapes up in a tree and he can't get it, so he convinces all the other animals that, oh, they're sour anyway and I don't want them. That's where we get our phrase sour grapes. But in Jeremiah, it means something very different. Sour grapes refers to the evil, the sin, that has been perpetrated, done by previous generations. They inevitably poison the next generation, their children, and the next generation, and the next generation, and on and on to the present day, so that the children's teeth are set on edge, like this. Everybody, no, I'm not gonna ask you to do that. That's a memorable image, right? Children's teeth are set on edge, and it makes perfect sense if you think of the context to which Jeremiah is writing. Because for years, 
the people of Jerusalem had treated the prophet Jeremiah as, uh, as anathema. They didn't want to hear what he said. He'd been constantly telling them and warning them that if they don't change their evil ways, God's going to punish them. Bad things are going to happen. Their, their hearts are engraved with sin, he says. And they don't want to listen to that bad news or what you know we might call fake news. I don't know. So they throw Jeremiah down into a cistern, big ditch outside of Jerusalem as a way to shut him up. But then, in 587 B.C., his words start to ring true to the people because the Babylonian Empire invades. And the city of Jerusalem is sacked. The temple where they worship God, where they think God lives, is destroyed. And the people of Israel are carried off into exile by their conquerors. And as the Bible says, by the shores of the rivers of Babylon, they remembered what Jeremiah had said both the bad stuff as well as the good stuff. Because along with his endless dismal judgments and warnings, we even have a word in English for that. We call it a Jeremiah. With all of this bad news, Jeremiah also delivers a powerful message of hope that only makes sense given all the bad stuff. He says, the days are surely coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, says the Lord. It will not be like the covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. But this is the covenant that I will make. I will put my law within them. I will write it in their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. And you know, those words allowed the people of Israel in exile to dream. To dream. That one day in the future, God was going to set things right and set them free, not just from Babylon, but set them free from their sins, too, from all the evil that they had done and were, were being punished for. God will establish a new covenant. Now, it's important to know that this doesn't mean the old covenant. You know, the laws written on stone that the Bible says Moses brought down from Mount Sinai and gave to the people doesn't mean those laws are bad in any way. It's just that laws written in stone, are impossible to follow all the time. Like rocks in a quarry, human beings are going to break them. So God decides to establish a new kind of a relationship with God's chosen people. God is going to write the new covenant, not in stone, but on the human heart. God will forgive the people, the record of their sins will be wiped clean, and they will know God in a deeper way than they have ever known God before. In fact, it's so deep and so intimate that Jeremiah uses the metaphor of marriage. Did you hear that? He says, God, the creator of the universe, is their husband. Husband of the people of Israel. 
The days are surely coming when the Lord and the people will become one flesh in marriage. And you know, that kind of language should sound kind of familiar to us as Christians because we use the same image, same kind of imagery ourselves to describe our intimate relationship uh, with God through Jesus Christ. We say that we are part of one body, the body of Christ. That's how close we are to God. And that's why this passage is the longest passage from the Old Testament that is quoted verbatim in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews. In Jesus Christ, a new covenant has been written on our hearts, which according to the Bible and the Jewish understanding of the world, the heart isn't just the seat of the emotions, kind of like we think nowadays when we think of the heart in terms of Valentine's Day or something. No, the heart is also the seat of the human will and the human intellect. Through the Spirit, the Bible tells us God is constantly reshaping us from the inside to want what God wants, to love as God loves, and to do what needs doing so that all of creation can flourish. Now, that being said, do we do that all the time? I don't know about you, but no, I don't. Like the Jews in Babylon and like Christians and people throughout the ages, I am also waiting for that day of consummation when God completes the work of regeneration in me and in you and in this world. There's still a long way to go. Because as we all know, the human heart is a complicated organ, whether you're talking about it scientifically or spiritually. And the heart leads where it leads. For example, just yesterday I did something I knew I shouldn't do. You want me to tell you what it was? Of course you do. Of course you want to hear what the pastor did wrong yesterday. I didn't want to do it, but I couldn't help myself. I threw a plastic bottle in the trash rather than recycle. <laughs> okay, I really didn't do that, <laughs> if you know me. I told my wife, though, that I did do it as a joke. And as I said earlier, she's going to be here later to talk about very practical ways that we can uh, make a change for, for, to uh, combat climate change. Um, so I didn't really do it. She did tell me that the joke wasn't very funny. <laughs> but she forgave me for it. She's also right, it's not funny. Because we, what we all do day by day, the little choices we make, the, or the things we do without consciously thinking about it, or the things we don't do at all, it all is a cumulative effect. It has an impact on the physical health of our planet, but also on the spiritual health of our heart. I mean, here's the thing. I don't want my actions or my inactions to be the sour grapes that set my own kids' teeth on edge when they have to deal with the consequences of climate change long after I'm gone. Sometimes, you know, I can't help it. Sometimes I do throw a plastic bottle in the trash. 
That's the truth. My heart makes me do hurtful things. And so does yours. So does yours. Whether it damages the climate or causes pain in some other way to other people or to creation or to God or to yourself, we all experience heart failure. Or as St. Paul says in Romans, I want to do good, but I don't really do it. I don't want to do bad, but then I do it anyway. Something has gone wrong deep within me, and it gets the better of me every time. Wretched man that I am, is there no one who can save me? Well, if you've read the Bible, you know that's a rhetorical question, right? Because in St. Paul's words, and in his heart, he knows there is someone who to save us. Jesus Christ saves us from this condition. Because the God of creation who made all things and called them good and who calls you and me to be good stewards of all that was made, the God we meet in Jesus Christ is at work right now in our hearts to build and to plant and to renew from the inside out. So this morning I invite you to pay attention. Pay attention. Open your heart. Open your eyes. Open your ears to wherever God is already busy, setting things right and setting people free. God's at work, you know, in all sorts of people who are just as mixed up as you and I are. But somehow they are made, able to make good choices about how to live and how to act in this world according to God's will. And sometimes, you know, they just seem to do it naturally, without even thinking about it. And we all do it. We all do it from time to time. We may say we acted out of intuition or from second nature, but maybe what we mean is that we did something good because a new covenant has been written on our hearts. So getting back to the metaphor of marriage for a second, you can think of the new covenant written on the heart as faithfulness. When a couple gets married, the minister, the rabbi, whatever, they ask the couple to make a promise to be faithful to each other. Till death do us part, or words to that effect, a rule or a law is lifted up before these two people, a law they are supposed to obey. And they say out loud before God and everybody else that they're always going to be faithful to each other. Now, does it always work out? No, of course not. It doesn't. But, you know, it also goes like this. In the first days and weeks and maybe years of a marriage, there are going to be all sorts of situations where uh, the couple have to be intentional, very intentional about keeping their vows. They have to pause and they have to think wait a minute, I'm married. I made a vow to be faithful in front of God and everybody else. So I've got to keep my promise. But then, you know, over time in a good marriage, 
or in any other kind of good relationship between two people that you find yourselves in, two people discover that they're no longer just trying real hard to be faithful. They're not just keeping a promise by thinking about it and being true to one another. No, they're simply faithful. It's as if God has written a covenant on their hearts. What they previously had to do with lots of effort, they now do by heart. The promise they thought they were obeying has now become part of who they are. So maybe that's why you're here today. You're ready for something new. You're ready to start over in some way. You're facing a situation in your life or your marriage or your relationships, whatever, which seems out of your control or or changing willy-nilly and you're caught up in it. And the truth is, maybe you cannot change your external circumstances all that much. But with God's help, you can change internally. And it starts by paying attention to your heart. Now, one of my heroes is, or was, Howard Thurman. Some of you may have heard of Dr. Thurman. He was a man of deep faith and intellect. He was the, one of the mentors of Martin Luther King Jr. and many of the civil rights uh, leaders. He was also a dean at Howard University and at Boston University. In his book, Meditations of the Heart, there is a poem called Centering Down. And I want to close with it today as an invitation for you to consider your heart. The place deep down where you are most authentically yourself, for good and for bad, and the place where God already is waiting desperately for you to to center down for the comfort and the challenge and the love, and the mercy that God already has for you inside. So here's the poem, Centering Down. How good it is to center down, to sit quietly and see one's life pass by. The streets of our minds seethe with endless traffic. Our spirits resound with clashings, with noisy silences, while something deep within hungers and thirsts for the still moment and the resting lull. With full intensity we seek, ere the quiet passes, a fresh sense of order in our living, a direction, a strong, sure purpose that will structure our confusion and bring meaning in our chaos. We look at ourselves in this waiting moment, the kinds of people we are, the questions persist. What are we doing with our lives? What are the motives that order our days? What is the end of our doings? Where are we trying to go? Where do we put the emphasis and where are our values focused? For what end do we make sacrifices? Where is my treasure and what do I love most in life? What do I hate most in life and to what am I true? Over and over, the questions beat in upon the waiting moment. As we listen, floating up through all the jangling echoes of our turbulence, there is a sound of another kind. 
a deeper note which only the stillness of the heart makes clear. It moves directly to the core of our being. Our questions are answered, our spirits refreshed, and we move back into the traffic of our daily round with the peace of the eternal in our step. How good it is to center down. Amen.